You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. John chapter 3. We'll be reading from verses 14 through 21 in just a few moments. We're continuing our journey preaching through the Gospel of John. This morning we're looking at what is probably the most familiar Bible verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16. And though it may be familiar, and hopefully it is familiar to, to us, it is my prayer that our hearts will freshly encounter the love of God this morning. That we will come to this with renewed hearts that are eager to understand again what it is that the Lord has spoken to us through this passage. So if you have your Bibles, again, I'll begin reading in verse 14 of John chapter 3. We're picking up in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God. This is the Word of God. May we have listening ears and receptive hearts. Pray with me, please. Father, we are grateful for Your Word, for its, its power, its clarity, how it helps us to understand who you are, how it helps us to understand what you did, how it helps us to understand what you require of us. So we are asking you with eager hearts to teach us, to speak to us, to help us understand, to strengthen our faith, to show us where we may be off, to encourage our feebleness that we might find in you strength to live. 
Lord, this is our prayer this morning. We pray this because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Last week, Pastor Philip wonderfully laid out for us the beginning of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man of prominence in the Jewish community. He was, we are told, he was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. We are also told this, that he was a ruler of the Jews. And this prominent religious leader sought Jesus out one evening because he was searching and he had questions that he wanted to ask about Jesus. He had heard about what Jesus was doing. He had heard about the incredible things and signs and miracles that Jesus had performed and it stimulated his interest. He wanted to know what was going on. So he came to Jesus at night to ask him. And Jesus, from the very beginning, began to challenge Nicodemus. To challenge his understanding of who God is. To understand his understanding of what it was that God was about. And what was required of people. Jesus told Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. That had to have stunned Nicodemus. Jesus was saying for all of Nicodemus' religious credentials, for all of his accomplishments, for all for his standing in the community as a ruler of the Jews, there was something essential that was lacking in him that he needed, that he wasn't even aware of. And it wasn't keeping more law, it was understanding and believing in the Son of Man who we, will, who we know as Jesus. Jesus challenged Nicodemus' grasp of spiritual truths and reality. He kind of calls him on the carpet. He said, I thought you were, you were a man of standing in the religious community. How do you not understand these things? How could you have missed this? And Jesus is going to have the same kind of tone a few chapters later in chapter 5 where he tells the, the Pharisees, you, you people search scriptures because in them you think they have, you'll have life, but they point to me and you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And then Jesus really shocks Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus that just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Uh, understand, Nicodemus had no category for what Jesus was saying. He knew the story, but he didn't understand the implication for his life and what Jesus was about and what Jesus was doing. So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in the Son of Man, will have eternal life. Nicodemus, what? what? What do you mean, Jesus? And probably Nicodemus doesn't understand that fully until Jesus is lifted on the cross and then it, it, the connection is made. See, in this moment, Jesus is referencing Numbers chapter 21, where the people of Israel had sinned against God. They had sinned against God by complaining, by speaking against Moses, the Lord's servant, and against God himself. And in judgment upon their sin, and persistent sin, and lack of faith and trust in him, God sent fiery serpents into among them, 
and everyone who was bitten died. So, the people were upset, obviously. So, they cry out to Moses. They, they, they repent. They say, we have sinned against God. We have been wrong. Please plead our case before God. Moses goes to God. God relents. And God says, okay, here's what we're going to do, Moses. We're going, I want you to go and I want you to make a serpent out of bronze. I want you to stick it on a pole and I want you to raise it up high among, in the camp. And here's how I'm going to heal people. If they will look at it, I'll heal them. They won't die. You know, of all the things that, that, that the Lord could have done there, that seems like, what is he doing, you know? Why, why that? He could have just said, just go through, the, go through the camp and just pronounce a blessing and everyone who hears it. No, he put... He had to make a serpent, put it on a stick, and everyone who looked to that serpent, that bronze serpent, was healed. Now Jesus is telling Nicodemus some 1,600 years after that, that event, that just as people under the judgment of God on their sin could be saved by looking at the bronze serpent, so could anyone bitten by sin look to Jesus and be saved. That's truly remarkable. Verses 16 through 21 is basically Jesus explaining what he said in verses 14 and 15. Where he said, whoever believes in the Son, will have eternal life. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent. He's now going to explain what that means in these verses. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And in Jesus' explanation in verses 16 through 21, to Nicodemus, remember this is to Nicodemus. He's talking to this, this man. There are really three main characters that are involved in those verses. Three main persons, so to say, or characters that are involved in this discussion. And to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to look at those three main characters and what the Scripture is saying about those three main characters. So basically, those three, three characters are, number one, God, number two, the believer, and number three, the unbeliever. And I think probably to say it more accurately or more fully, we have, number one, the God who acts. Number two, the believer who trusts. And number three, the unbeliever who rejects. These are the three main characters that we are given in this passage to help Nicodemus, and by implication, to help us today understand what Jesus meant in verses 14 and 15. So let's look at these three characters this morning. The first is the God who acts. The God who acts. This passage is wonderful on so many different levels. It portrays God as active. God isn't just sitting by an uninterested observer of what's happening in this world. He is the primary mover of everything. Of everything that is happening. 
He's the primary cause behind it all. God is involved. He is doing something and what he is doing is central to this passage. It's central to the explanation that Jesus has given to Nicodemus about what he is saying. There are actually four verbs, four, there are four verbs that are used in this passage. They are active verbs. They are strong verbs that are used to describe what God is doing and what God is up to through his son Jesus. The first verb we see, number, number one, God loved. God loved. Verse 16, for God so loved the world. You know, it was very tempting <laughs> to just stop there and just do, a, do, do one sermon just there. Just on that one, that one simple phrase, for God so loved the world. Matter of fact, I've heard pastors and preachers again and again and again talk about how they could preach 52 sermons over a whole year just on this one verse. There's so much there to really, to, to, to really plumb. But this verse is telling us something essential about God. The God of all the God over all was motivated and moved by love. Our understanding of God must first and foremost be that He loves. His love is not secondary. It's not ancillary. It, it, it's, not a, it's not an extra quality of God. This is a primary quality of God that goes hand in hand in all his other qualities, like his holiness and his righteousness. There is no way to consider God's holiness apart from his love. There is no way to consider God's righteousness apart from his love. Those things are mixed within the character and being of God. And everything that God does is an expression of that. And love is one of those primary characteristics of who God is. In John's epistle, later in the New Testament, he tells us this. He tells us a lot about love, but he tells us that, number one, love is from God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. And John, and John tells us something else in his epistle about love, that God himself is love. He says it three different times, God is love. He doesn't say love is God. He says God is love. Meaning that love is not self-defining. Nor is it up to human definition. God defines what love is by His very existence, by His very being. And we live in a culture that is quickly trying to redefine what love is. And we are given such a greater love in Scripture of who God is and how He acts. And as Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus about what He meant, He establishes the motive behind what God did. And He said it was done in love. For God so loved the world. The word love there is the Greek word agape. There are various words that are used to describe love in the New Testament, Greek words. 
All of them find their expression somehow in God himself, and, and God can love in all those different ways. But the word that's used here is agape. This is a self-sacrificing kind of love, and that's exactly what we see in John 3.16. Listen, church, family, friends this morning, may we all know the love of God in abundance in our lives. When we know the love of God, here's how you know it's starting to take hold. How it's starting to grip you because your life starts to change. When we begin to see the love of God. When we begin to see what He really is like in His love. God's heart and God's favor and God's delight and His inclination is towards His people because He loves There is never a moment of our day. There is never a challenge that we face. There is never an adversity that we come up against that is absent God's love. And that love in God isn't just a feeling. It's not just that God sits up there and He has warm fuzzies for us. That's how most people think about love. It's some kind of moving emotion. I do believe Scripture describes God as being having strong emotions, but it's not just that He's moved by something. He actually acts on what He feels. It is self-sacrificing love. He acts out of that heart for us, moved with compassion, with the affection that He has for His people. This verse says, His love is for the world. For God so loved the world. Meaning, His love was not just limited to the Jews. Nicodemus, remember, remember who who the audience is here, the original audience. It's Nicodemus. It is someone who still was operating on the assumption that the nation of Israel, that the Jews were it. that, That that's all that mattered. God loved the Jews and everyone else. Too bad. And Jesus comes along and says, God so loved the world. Not just you Jews, but he, he had a love for the world. It wasn't just limited to the nation of Israel. It was for people across all races, across all cultures. And God is moved with love toward people. As we continue to move through this, it is the Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. It's really been my prayer as we, as we go into this, this, moving into this section of, of Scripture. Paul prayed that the Lord may grant you to be strengthened with power, that you may have strength to comprehend, to comprehend, to understand, to grasp, is what he's saying. That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
This is what we are introduced with first in chapter, in, in chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, the God who acts, He acts in love. And that was clearly on display in His next action. God loved, God gave. That's the next verb, God gave. For God so loved the world that He gave. What did He give? God gave His only Son. I remember so very clearly the church I grew up in. I was taught to read this verse, John 3.16, like this. For God loved the world so much that He gave. And truthfully, that's not really how it reads. That's not really how the, how the Scripture goes. It actually reads... For this is how God loved the world, by giving His Son. This verse is actually talking about the means of God's love. Again, this wasn't just warm fuzzies He was feeling towards us. He was, act, he, he was moved to act, and what He did in that action was He gave His Son, Jesus. And while the phrase isn't about how much God loves, the second phrase actually is. So that actually becomes a, a distinction without a difference. Because we ultimately end up to where we understand how much God loved us, because when we see what He gave, we begin to understand how much God loved. To give someone so cherished to people, to people who are so undeserving, that speaks of a love that go goes beyond our ability to grasp. That's why Paul in Ephesians 3, what I just read, was saying, I pray that you will understand it because you think you got a hold on it and it just blows through our categories. It blows through our boundaries when we begin to really open ourselves to the love of God. He loved so much that He gave His Son. He presented His Son. And that leads to, that's closely tied to the third verb, or the third action. Not only did God love, does God love, God gave, we also find out God sent. Verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Well, when He said He did not send, the other side of that is He sent. He, acted, he actively did send, and He sent for a purpose. This verse is telling us why Jesus came from the Father. And in that we see God sent His Son. Again, remember this, who's hearing this originally. This is Nicodemus. Jesus is saying, I am sent from God for a purpose. And that purpose is to deal with the biggest problem that the world has. That the people on that planet, on that world... The problem that they have. Nicodemus would have thought, like any Jew of that time, would have thought that the biggest problem in the world was the fact that the Jews were having to live under Roman rule. They were having to live under the thumb of an oppressive regime. The average Jew would have felt that way. The average Jew, including Nicodemus, would have thought the promised Messiah that had people were looking for, that people were hoping for, that people were praying for, it would be someone who would come who would deliver them from Roman oppression and would establish them as the supreme nation among the nations, that all nations would bow before them because that's what the Messiah, that's what the deliverer would do. They were looking for a leader and a savior who would pronounce and then unleash the judgment of God on the nations. Jesus is letting Nicodemus know that he was sent not to execute judgment or to 
condemnation, as Jesus said, on the nations of the world. His job was not to bring condemnation when he first came. It was to bring deliverance from sin. Jesus' job wasn't political. It was spiritual in nature. He wasn't a conquering lion. He was a sacrificial lamb. And He came that the world might be saved through Him. Not through the establishing of a political party or winning over the government. He did it through conquering Satan and sin and death. And this is what leads us to the fourth verb. God loved, God gave, God sent, and God saved. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He sent His Son so the world might be saved. God saves us through Jesus' sacrifice. And please hear this. And there is no other way to be saved. There is no other sacrifice that's been provided. There is no other means for a person to come clean before God. There is no work that they can perform. There is no system that they can follow. There is no law that they can keep that will correct what's wrong with them before God. Only through Jesus is salvation possible. But the question comes, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? From our sin, yes. But more than that, we are saved from the judgment of God on our sin. The judgment of God on our sin. We are saved from the death and the destruction that sin causes, but we are more importantly saved from the death and destruction of God's judgment on our sin. Listen to what Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Hear it again, 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He Himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen, they're all talking about how Jesus saves us. He saves us because He gave up His life. Because His blood was shed. Because He took the beating that we should have taken. He, he experienced God forsaking Him when we should be the ones experiencing God be, forsaking us. He did this that we might be saved. It was already said today in the service, but I want, I want you to hear it again. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus did not come to unleash the judgment of God, yet He came to bring salvation. 
Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. There's coming a time when that day will end, but it's not yet. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus came the first time to be the sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is going to come the second time to be the judge over sin. And until He comes, the day is about salvation. This is the time when men and women, young men and young women, children can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Please hear this. It will not always be this way. But today, if you're hearing this, the grace of God is upon you if you're hearing this. Anyone who hears the truth and will not harden your heart, but trust in Jesus will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel that we proclaim to all people. Do you believe in Jesus that you might have eternal life? Do you trust in Him as your Savior? Do you follow Him as your Lord? Listen, God did all He did because He loved the world. He gave, He sent, He saved. And let's not be confused about this, about the love of God. At my former church in Buffalo, uh, I had this closing benediction that I would often say. I would make a statement, something to the effect of, remember as you leave this gathering, because Christ died for you, God loves you, and God is with you, and God is for you. And I was just wanting to encourage people to look to Christ. But how that's phrased isn't accurate. I think I would say something different now. Because God loved you, Christ died for you. And now He is always with you and always for you. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. That's what this verse is saying. That's the testimony of Scripture. And sometimes, especially in, in, in circles, reform circles, or those who love the doctrines of grace, we, we kind of get this, that God only loves us because Christ died for us, as if God begrudgingly and against His will loves us, but has to because Jesus died for us. He sent Jesus, He gave Jesus, so because He loved the world. And because God in love gave and God sent and God saved, we are sure that He will continue to be with us and be for us today. So the most important character in, this, in these six verses is God, the God who acts. But we find another person presented here. And we're going to have to get on our wheels here to finish this. <laughs> Two. First, there is the God who acts. Second, there is the believer who trusts. We find this phrase three different times in three different verses, 15, 16, and 18. Whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him, this is referring to any person who trusts in Jesus. They will be saved. They will have eternal life. This, again, too, would have challenged Nicodemus. He would have thought to be saved, you had to become a Jew. You had to keep the law. You had to follow the Jewish customs. And Jesus didn't say any of that. That's not where Jesus went. 
Jesus said the kingdom of God is for the one who is born again and who believes in Jesus himself. What does it mean to believe? It means that a person holds that Jesus is who he said he is and he did what the Bible said he did. It can be reduced essentially to that. They hold to that. They believe that's true. Jesus is God become man who lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, was raised to life by the power of the Father, and is returning in glory to judge the living and the dead. And the believing that we have in Jesus, in this person, results in a commitment of one's life to Jesus. How can you believe that and not be committed to Him as Savior and Lord? It, it, it doesn't make sense. James Boyce once said this, We turn from trusting in ourselves and instead trust God fully. We see the infinite worth and love of the Son of God who gave Himself for our salvation and commit ourselves to Him. That's what he's talking about, belief. It is is acknowledging certain facts, certain truths, but it is also committing ourselves. It is accepting them as true and letting that reorder our life. And so, whoever believes in Him will be saved. And family, whoever means whoever. It means whoever. The whoever here in no way diminishes the sovereignty of God. The whoever here does not place man's will over God's will. We know that a man must be born again in order to believe. So we trust that when the gospel is given and a person believes, it is the Spirit at work enabling that belief. But we proclaim that broadly. We scatter the gospel seed widely. Because we don't know where the Spirit's working. We don't know what's going on in hearts. We can honestly, earnestly say, whoever will believe will have eternal life. Let's not shy away from whoever. And then we are told this about the believer who trusts. That the believer in trust will not perish. The believer in trust will not. God sent His Son into the world that whoever believes in Him will not perish. Listen, this is, this is talking about something significant in terms of eternity. The danger of hell has been permanently eliminated for the one who believes in Jesus. There is no chance of perishing for those who trust in Jesus. So remember, and I think this is kind of one of those bottom floor kinds of things, no matter how bad or difficult things may be, the truth is, at least you're not going to hell. Right? And things can get bad, and I don't want to make light of difficult situations people face. But the bottom line is your eternity is secured, and there's coming a day when all the wrongs will be righted. And so we, 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 we live knowing that, that that's the floor, in a sense. We are not going to hell. Not only is perishing no longer a threat, but eternal life is promised. The one who believes and trusts in Jesus isn't just existing in limbo out there. We are experiencing something special, which is the second thing. The believer who trusts in Jesus has eternal life. He says it in verse 14. He says it in 16. And he says it in 18. We will know life without end. And it will not be this life. 
We are told there is a new heaven and a new earth that is coming, and we will have new bodies. We will not be floating on clouds playing harps. I remember that image watching cartoons growing up, thinking, oh, well, who wants to do that, you know? That couldn't be further from the truth. That's not what eternal life is. It will be an existence where there are pleasures forevermore, all from the hand of God. And sin will no longer be a player in our life. We will enjoy God without hindrance. We will enjoy God without rival. And we will enjoy the new creation He has given. And it will never end. This is why Jesus said in John, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Not only does the believer who trusts in Jesus, will they not perish? Not only do they have eternal life, the believer who trusts in Jesus is not condemned. He who trusts in the Lord is not condemned, this verse says. The believer in Christ is not condemned. There is nothing on our ledger. There is no balance due. There is no debt to pay. Our sin is completely gone. It's totally paid for. And as a result of that sin debt being wiped out, there is nothing to condemn us. There's no one to say, you are guilty. You must be judged. You must pay for that. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wish, and I, 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 for myself I, and for, for the church family, that we could live in that verse for just a week. Just letting it imprint on our soul and start reordering some of how we think and feel. There is no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. It needs to get inside of us more than it has. There is no condemnation for, a, for everyone who believes in Him. And the result of no condemnation is a free heart. We know there's still battle with sin. I'm not saying that we don't still battle sin. But we know our sin will never be used against us because God in Christ paid for that sin. God is not our judge. He is our Father. There coming a day, yes, when we will give an account of what we've done as His people. But God is not our judge. He has become our Father. And instead of judging us, God is the one who fights for us and fights through us against our sin. The believer who trusts in Jesus will not perish, has eternal life, and is not condemned. And the believer who trusts in Jesus loves the light. Verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Our relationship to the light reveals our heart. When a person is given to what is true, they want the light. They are not intimidated by the light. They know the light shining on them will show that God is the one who is at work in them. That's what he means when he says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He's not ashamed of that. His life is filled with God. It's filled with the things of God. It's filled with pursuing the way of God. It's, pursued, it's filled with living for the glory of God. And the light can only show good things. You see, in Christ, we have the power to live in the light. Think about that. 
That should be a distinguishing characteristic of followers of Christ. The power to live in the light. The willingness to be transparent. We're not perfect, we sin, but we don't have to cover it because we know Christ covered it. To not cover, to not hide, to not pretend, to not project some pretense. Have you ever seen those cartoons, maybe, maybe seen on a television show or a movie, where a person is standing there, they're not saying anything, but that bubble appears above them, and in there are the thoughts? What if life was like that? Yeah, who, who would want that? Except, as followers of Christ, we can live like that. It wouldn't matter if they know, yeah, you know what, I wasn't thinking right there, but, but God forgive me, and I, He's going to enable something different. The power to live in the light. We need to move on. Then we see the believer who trusts in Jesus hates the darkness. If you love the light, you hate the darkness. The believer who trusts in Christ hates the darkness, for in it... For in the darkness, the sin thrives. It is in darkness that Christ is denied. It is in darkness that souls are distorted, corrupted. Those who come to the truth know this. They know the truth about the darkness. So listen. If you find yourself moving toward hiding, if you find yourself constantly deflecting, if you find yourself covering up, if you're afraid someone may find you out, listen, you're moving toward the darkness, not the light. And that's not a good way to go. The way forward is the way of confession. Let the light of Christ shine bright on your way. Let the light of the gospel overpower your sin. Let the truth fill you that because you trust in Christ, there is no condemnation before God. There is only love. There is only acceptance. There is only God. So this is the person who believes. So quickly, let's go to the third person. The unbeliever who rejects Jesus. The unbeliever who rejects Jesus. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son, the only Son of God. Since Jesus is the greatest gift ever given, rejection of him is probably the greatest sin ever committed. To not believe in him is to reject him. And in that rejection, the unbeliever is calling is calling God a liar. John tells us this in his epistle 1 John 5, verse 9, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son, Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning His Son. God says, this is My Son. Believe in Him. To reject that. You can reject the witness of a Christian. You can reject the witness of a church. But to reject the witness of God is to call Him a liar. And the consequences are dire. So the unbeliever who rejects Jesus, they will perish. 
To perish is not ceasing to exist. Perishing is talking about perdition. It's talking about hell. Perishing is talking about the judgment of God. And just as those who believe in Jesus have eternal life, those who reject Jesus have eternal judgment. Perishing. I know this is uncomfortable. And, and there's, there's no pleasure in my soul or in my being saying this, but it is still true. Perishing is talking about being tormented day and night because we do not trust in Jesus. Revelation 20 tells us this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. John 16 through John 3, 16 through 21. It has all these incredible, wonderful elements of the gospel. It begins with God who loves and gives and sins and saves. And people are generally okay. Yeah, that's a great message. He loves me. He sent Jesus for me. He's going to save me. But as soon as we move into what are we saved from and what's at stake, people become uncomfortable. Because in truth, there is judgment and there is condemnation and there is eternal damnation for those who reject Jesus. God would not be loving if He was not judging sin. Those things go together. How will you trust or love a person who's okay with evil? How can you trust that person? And God takes care of the sin. If all we talk about is the love of God and we don't talk about the consequences and the penalty and the judgment on sin, then we leave the wrong impression on people. Whoever believes, Jesus will say at the end of chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Listen, but the wrath of God remains on him. Going on, the unbeliever who rejects Jesus will not have eternal life. You know, people talk about FOMO. Am I saying that right? F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out, right? That's something that this, this dynamic that's developed mainly because of social media, that, that, that people are afraid that something is happening or something is going on that they're missing out on. Fear of missing out, and that's why they're always on their phone with their friends. I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss something that's going on. And it just kind of feeds that. Sickness, I would call it. Listen, there's only one FOMO you need to be worried about, and that's the fear of missing out on heaven and missing out on Christ. Everything else doesn't matter. And the unbeliever who rejects Jesus will not have eternal life. And the unbeliever who rejects Jesus is currently under condemnation. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The one who rejects Jesus and does not believe in Him is under the penalty and condemnation already. That penalty is not being executed. The judgment is not being carried through yet because today is the day of salvation because of the kindness and forbearance of the Lord. But again, it will not always be that way. You are condemned. And if Christ comes again and you remain in your sin, you do not believe Jesus, you are under condemnation and the judgment of God on sin will come 
at you. You don't want that. And this, the unbeliever who rejects Jesus loves darkness. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. People don't want to come to the light of Christ. They don't want to have their lives exposed. They want to continue to live in whatever way they were. The darkness suits them. The darkness allows them. They don't want people to know. Jesus said this another way. The, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, and those who enter by it are many. People love darkness. That's the way. It's easy. It's broad. People who do wickedness love their wickedness, so they love the dark. It takes a work of God in their life to dislodge and set them free from a love of darkness. And this is why Jesus is saying God loved and gave and sent and saves people. And finally, the unbeliever who rejects Jesus hates the light. Why? Because they want to do what they want to do, and they don't want anyone telling them otherwise. They don't want to submit themselves to Jesus. They refuse the truth, and with it they declare their love for, for darkness. You know, this is just the opposite of the believer who trusts, right? The believer who trusts loves the light, hates the darkness. The unbeliever who rejects loves the darkness and hates the light. And people hate that. I remember my, my in-laws, when we'd stay in their house, we'd be visiting on the back of their house, right underneath, right over our window to the bedroom, our guest bedroom, they put a, a light. And by light, I mean like about a billion lumens. I mean, you could be dark night, you could have every light off, the, the shades drawn, the curtains pulled, and you could read. It was so bright in that room. They did that because there were burglaries in the neighborhood. They lived on a big drainage ditch, and people were coming up from the drainage. You know why they put the light up? Because... Criminals don't want to be seen. They don't want to be seen and the light exposes them. So they go somewhere else that's easier. A light exposes what they are doing. Family, we live in a time when darkness is not only embraced, it is called light. We should not be surprised by this. I don't know why the church always seems to react when the world sins. That's what the world does. It sins because it's, a, it's sin. <laughs> and we are surprised. I'm surprised that it doesn't sin more. We should not be surprised that the people love darkness and they promote darkness as if it's light. And that causes us to respond in certain ways. We must hold fast to Christ. We must find His power to live and to love in the light. Living in the light is so important. We must warn people who are perishing that there is salvation in Jesus. And we must extend the love of God in Jesus to all people. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray.